please open your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 29. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 24, 29 to 35. Uh, at this point, we're several weeks into the Olivet Discourse. Uh, this discourse started back in verse 3, when the disciples asked Jesus, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? You'll recall that this question came in response to Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction. The disciples uh, rightly perceived that the temple's destruction signaled the midpoint between Daniel's 69th and 70th weeks, according to Daniel 9.26. This means that after the destruction of the temple, there is only one seven-year period left to be fulfilled before the time of the Gentiles ends and the final restoration of Israel begins. Unfortunately, Daniel explains that this final seven-year period will be a time of great tribulation, For the nation of Israel. And so, as the disciples contemplate both the suffering that lies in store for the nation as well as the glory of the coming restoration, two questions rush to their mind. They want to know number one, when will these things be? That is to say, when will this time of suffering begin? That's how the disciples apparently interpret the prediction of the temple's destruction. They assume that marks the onset of the great tribulation. In the course of Jesus' answer, he corrects that expectation, but that's what they want to know first. When will the tribulation begin? And then right along with that, they want to know what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That is, when are these things going to end? How will we know when the suffering is about to stop? Daniel predicted in Daniel 7 that the reign of the Antichrist would come to an end by one like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven and is presented before the Ancient of Days. The disciples know that's Jesus. He's often called himself the Son of Man, and they've come to believe that. So they want to know, what will be the signs of your coming? How will we know when you're about to return to put an end to the present age? Those two questions sum up the whole of the subject matter of the Olivet Discourse. It concerns Jesus' explanation about the timing of of the end of the age. Up to this point, Jesus' answer has been primarily concerned with the second of these two questions. He's been explaining the signs that will precede His coming at the end of the age. That all started back in verse 4. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be false messiahs before the end, but don't worry, when you see those things, the end is not yet. And then starting in verse 7, he explains, saying, For nation will rise against nation, and there will be famines and earthquakes. Those are the signs that signal the beginning of the birth pains. Then he continues, And at that time there will be a great apostasy, as many wilt under the heat of intense persecution. And during that time the gospel will finally be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then, he says, then the end will come. The abomination of desolation will be set up. That will signal the time of intense tribulation for Israel at the hands of the Antichrist. These are all the signs which will signal the final stage of God's redemption has been set in motion. Now, today, Jesus describes His coming in Matthew 24, 29-35. Let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I think it's probably fair to say that there are some doctrines today that are, I'd say, rather conveniently overlooked. And chief among these is the wrath of God. It's probably not too hard to figure out why. The wrath of God is obviously a very unpleasant subject. It makes us all very uncomfortable. And so it's probably safe to say that that's why it's overlooked. After all, you're not going to attract large crowds preaching on the wrath of God. It's like Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 when he said that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth to wander into myths. People don't want to hear about the wrath of God. They don't want to be reminded that God hates their sin and demands their repentance, and so they seek out teachers who refuse to bring the subject up. They demand teachers who will speak only on the love of God. And unfortunately, there are all too many of those pastors who think that the proclamation of the gospel means skipping right over the whole sin and judgment and hell part and jumping straight to forgiveness and grace. I mean, just ask yourself, when was the last time that you heard a sermon about hell? Or how many times have have I heard a sermon about hell in my entire life? I'd venture to say not many, especially if you're younger. It's just very out of vogue to talk openly and plainly about the wrath of God. In fact, I would think for most pastors, the term fire and brimstone preacher is pejorative. It's an insult. I don't think it was always that way, certainly not to all people, but it's very much the case today. The wrath of God is considered taboo. But make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. God is incredibly angry with sin. He looks down on the world today and He is full of wrath. Now to be clear, He's full of compassion as well. And in His mercy, He offers grace to His enemies. He even sent His Son to earth so that He might absorb the wrath that God feels towards sinners. And God did this so that His enemies might be forgiven of their sin and receive His blessing instead of His wrath. But all the same, none of this changes the fact that apart from the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, God is incredibly angry with every single sinner. And He must and will punish them for every single one of their sins. Not too long ago, I was driving by a church and on the signage out front, pointing out into the world, It said, God is good, and He's in a good mood. And as I drove by, I remember thinking to myself, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the message that men like John the Baptist, or even Jesus, for that matter, declared to the unbeliever. No, what they said is, God is just, and He is holy. And while He is very good and gracious, He is also very angry at the world on account of its sin. He is not in a good mood. In fact, he's in a very bad mood. 
So repent and believe in the gospel. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the name that God proclaimed to Moses, right, as he passed by him before then continuing. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. No, God is not in a good mood. He is a just God. And He is incredibly angry with sin. I think this is perhaps nowhere clearer than in the passage before us this morning. Because in this passage, Jesus returns. And when He returns, He comes with great wrath. Again, this is a picture of Jesus that is often ignored. We prefer to think of Jesus at His, weak, as his, at his weakest. We'd like to think of Him as He's dying on the cross for our sins. And that's one aspect of Jesus' character. He came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We like that part of Jesus. That part which reveals that Jesus is humble. That He condescends to serve His creation. And so, we'll speak of this aspect of Jesus' character often. Less popular are those passages that speak of Jesus coming to smash the nations with a rod of iron. And of His filling the earth with corpses. We like to think of Jesus as he's described in Isaiah 53, as a man despised and rejected by men, as as the lamb crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. Less so do we like to think of him as he's described in the book of Revelation. With eyes like a flame of fire, and a voice like the roar of many waters with a sharp two-edged sword protruding from his mouth, which he uses to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, of his head crowned with many diadems, and of his robes dipped in blood. But both aspects of Jesus are equally true. He is both a humble servant and a ferocious warrior king. In today's passage, we get a picture of the latter of these two truths. As Jesus describes the signs that will immediately precede His coming, you may even say, in a sense, coincide with His coming, He says that there will be great cataclysms in the sky. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the heavens. Occasionally, this language is used figuratively in the Old Testament to describe the judgment of God. The judgment described by Jesus here in Matthew 24, however, appears to be literal. Because in describing the judgments that will be unleashed on the earth during the time of the tribulation, the book of Revelation explains that these very things will come to pass at the end. When the sixth seal is broken in Revelation 6, for example, John says, quote, There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among rocks of the the, the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's an exact description of what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. And it doesn't appear to be figurative. 
After all, the first seal describes the Antichrist, who literally comes and rages across the earth. The second, third, and fourth seals describe war and famine and death, all of which are literally fulfilled in the Great Tribulation. The fifth seal describes that the tribulation will be marked by rampant persecution and martyrdom. This is also fulfilled literally. And so it stands to reason that there will be a literal darkening of the sky at that time as well, in addition to tremendous geological cataclysms across the earth. As the book of Revelation continues, that's precisely what's described. Revelation 8.12, for example, says that when the fourth of the seven trumpets are blown, quote, a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So it's not a total darkness that ensues then, just a partial one. You'll also recall that these trumpets occur in the first half of the tribulation, and they apparently proclaim the wrath that's going to occur in the second half. Because the pars- these are partial judgments that occur uh, with the trumpets are, are paralleled and finally completed with the bowls. We find this correspondence between the fourth trumpet and the fifth bowl. In Revelation 16, John says that when the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, that is the Antichrist, his kingdom is plunged into total darkness. And people will gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven. Again, this seems to be the picture that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24. A complete darkening of the heavens. The lights in the sky dwindle, and then they go out entirely. The sky is so completely blackened and so suddenly that John says that it's rolled up like a scroll. Darkness sweeps across the planet. That is in itself a kind of judgment. Again, John says that the people in the kingdom of the Antichrist will gnaw their tongues and curse the God of heaven for the darkness as well as for the sores he inflicts upon them in an earlier bold judgment. So darkness is a kind of judgment. However, this darkness also seems to be a precursor for something else, something greater. The something greater comes in verse 30. When Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus says that after the sky goes dark, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Now, it's not entirely clear what that sign is here. However, Daniel 7 speaks of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And so the most logical conclusion is to assume that the sign of the Son of Man is what Jesus describes in the rest of the verse. He says that when He comes, He will come riding on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the most likely interpretation for the sign of the Son of Man. It is the resurrected Jesus breaking the pitch black darkness with unspeakably resplendent glory. That's the meaning of this word glory, doxa in the Greek. It means literally brightness, radiance, or splendor. It would seem that the reason why God sends such great darkness before the end is so that when His Son appears, the brightness of His glory would be all the more brilliant and remarkable when it comes. In that day there will be no light except for the inexpressibly marvelous glory of Jesus, which according to verse 27, cracks across the sky like a dazzling flash of lightning. When that glory appears, Jesus says that the tribes of the earth 
will mourn. They'll mourn. What's striking about this fact is that in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, none of the other signs and judgments cause the nations to mourn. In the first six seals, God God, uh, sends uh, hail and fire down that burns up a third of the trees and the grass on the earth. He turns a third of the sea into blood. A third of the fresh waters he turns bitter. A third of the sky is darkened. He sends locusts that sting and torment the people of the earth. A A great army is unleashed that kills a third of the global population. And at the conclusion of all of that, John writes, quote, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Likewise, when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth and God turns all the waters of the earth to blood, killing everything in them and making all the water undrinkable, and when He then allows the sun to scorch the earth with intense heat, And he causes painful sores to break out on those who worship the Antichrist. And then at the end, he finally plunges the whole earth into darkness. It has no effect. John says only that at the end of these judgments, quote, people nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Indeed, they they do not repent. For in the sixth bowl, The Antichrist sends out demons who call the kings of the earth to assemble for battle against the Messiah, and they come. They come to fight the Messiah. All the way up until the very end, the people are actually angry with God for the judgments He sends. They're even ready to wage war against Him under the banner of the Antichrist. But when this glory appears, something changes. It's as if the splendor of this glory is so radiant and so powerful that the world finally understands. While all the terror of the previous judgments were not enough to communicate the doom that the world was soon to experience for their rebellion against God, this one finally gets the message across. Up until that point, the signs presented by the Antichrist are enough to convince the world that they can win. Perhaps they even believe Him to be the true Messiah and Jesus the false one up until that point. But with the sudden burst of this brilliant glory, the delusion comes crashing down. The world finally comes to comprehend the power of Jesus Christ with the sudden appearance of His glory and for the first time they're utterly terrified. Revelation 6 says that at that time everyone both great and small, will cry out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the the Lamb. Jeremiah 30 describes men in such a panic that they're grabbing at their sides in terror as if they were in labor. And God says that every face is, is turned pale. That is how brilliant the glory of Christ will be in that day. It will be a clear sign to all peoples that a holy and righteous king has come to the earth with great power to judge the wicked. And all will be afraid. I've already described in past weeks what will happen at that time, but I think it bears repeating at this point. 
Zechariah 14 says that Jesus will descend on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, and the Lord will enter the city of Jerusalem with His holy ones. And by the way, Zechariah also says that there is neither night nor day at this time. But it says that at evening time there shall be light. This seems to mirror the descriptions of darkness broken by the glory of the Lord that we see in these other passages of Scripture. The Antichrist and his armies will have already withdrawn to the valley of Jezreel by this time to prepare for the battle of Armageddon. However, when Jesus arrives with his army, it's an absolute slaughter. It's hard to even call it a battle because it would seem that God simply kills the army of the Antichrist with an incredibly incredibly gruesome plague. Zechariah 14.12 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. And this is graphic here, but this is what it says. It says, Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. As this plague sets in, terror and confusion transpires. Zechariah continues in verse 13. He says, And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Essentially, the armies of the Antichrist are so panic-stricken that they begin to attack one another. Zechariah 14.14 says that Judah will fight at Jerusalem in that day. So the Jewish people do have a part in this final victory. They're going to fight the peoples of the earth as Jesus slays the the armies of the Antichrist, according to Revelation, by himself. In the end, it's a total rout for the nation of Israel. The Jews not only overcome the peoples of the nations, but Jesus slays the remainder of the Antichrist army with the breath of his mouth while plunging the Antichrist and the false prophet into hell. And I've already said it before, but I think I need to say it again in order for you to understand the severity of this battle. Revelation 14 indicates that, at least in some places, blood will run as high as a horse's bridle for up to 185 miles. Revelation 20 says that birds of prey will come and gorge themselves on the flesh of the slain. And this is all very graphic, but understand I say all of this because, again, we're so very prone to overlook the wrath of God. It makes us uncomfortable. But this is what the Bible says about Jesus' return. And you need to acknowledge that. You can't ignore that. So I say all this to force you to reckon, reckon, reckon with this fact. When we see the return of Jesus described in this way, there's simply no way to escape. It's obviously coming with great severity and wrath. We have to acknowledge this. There's no sugarcoating it. The Bible says that Jesus' return is going to be incredibly brutal. And this raises the question, how are we to interact with this truth? What are we to take away from this idea that when Jesus returns, He'll come with power and with great wrath. To put it another way, how is the severity of Jesus to be applied? I'll tell you how the early disciples applied it. In fact, I'll even do you one better. I'll tell you how Jesus applied it. When they looked at the coming of Jesus with power and great wrath, do you know what they saw in it? They saw it as vindication. Vindication. Vindication is another concept that comes up in Scripture which makes us uncomfortable. Uh, We don't think it's something we're supposed to want. After all, it seems rather proud 
to want to be proven right, to be shown as right. And it can seem unloving to want the wicked outed for their wickedness. And I think there's a sense in which we should feel this way about vindication, since in truth we are no different than the unbeliever, not at our core. We're sinners just as they are. We're no more deserving of exaltation than anyone else. The punishment of the wicked should make us shrink back in humility in this sense, because we're just as much a criminal as anyone else. However, at the same time, what you must come to terms with is that God does look at those who suffer with His Son differently. They're sinners, yes, but there's an obedience that, he, that, that they give to Him which pleases Him. And when He sees them persecuted for that faithfulness, His compassion is kindled, and He wants to see them vindicated for their righteousness before their accusers. His justice actually demands it. Just like the wrath of God, the concept of vindication may make us blush, but there's no denying that it's found throughout the Scriptures. The Psalms, for instance, are chock full of statements calling out to God to vindicate the righteous. For example, David writes in Psalm 9, 3-4, where he gives thanks to God, because, quote, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish in your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. In Psalm 21, 8-12, he declares to God, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy the descendants from the, their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows." And in Psalm 37, 7-11, he exhorts his listeners, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. And he explains why you shouldn't fret yourself. He says, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. He continues in verse 12, saying, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. And I could go on. Statements like this are are simply littered throughout the Psalms. They really aren't very hard to find because it's a common theme in David's worship. He longed for vindication. In fact, he even despaired when he didn't think that vindication was coming. Psalm 13, for instance, begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And he says, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's simply in agony over the injustice on display in the triumph of the wicked. And so he cries out, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to prove yourself just and vindicate me before my enemies? And it's not just David who spoke this way. Jesus looked for vindication. Did you know that? Jesus looked for vindication. In 1 Peter 2, It says that the reason why Jesus submitted himself to those who treated him wickedly 
was because, quote, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Mark that. Mark that. Jesus counted, he counted on the fact that God would see his conduct in the face of injustice and vindicate his name. That's how he bore up under injustice. He trusted in the fact that in the end, God would make it right. God would vindicate him. And God did vindicate him through his resurrection from the dead. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was partly the role of the resurrection. It served as a vindication of Jesus before his enemies. Paul says in Romans 1, 3-4, that Jesus, quote, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is what the resurrection did. It proved that Jesus was righteous. It proved that he was not lying, that he was indeed the Son of God, and that it was wrong to crucify him. In Philippians 2, Paul says that because of his humble obedience in all things, quote, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There, again, is the idea of vindication. Jesus proved himself worthy of all authority through his obedience, and so God exalted him. Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name so that every knee might bow to Him. Even though Jesus became the ultimate servant, God vindicated Him by exalting Him to the highest place of honor. So again, Jesus both looked for and received vindication in His obedience. And He not only anticipated it for Himself, but He encouraged it with His disciples. He told Peter, for instance, that in the new new world, those who left everything to follow him would receive a hundred times as much as what they surrendered in this life. Again, they would be recompensed, vindicated for their faithfulness. And in Revelation 2, he tells the church of Thyatira, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Again, he encouraged this anticipation of vindication. The Apostle Paul also encouraged the church to look for vindication. Probably the clearest example of this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10 where he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. I mean, That's something that could have been written by King David. That's something you could find in the Psalms. Paul is anticipating the punishment, the punishment that God will mete out on those who afflict the Thessalonians for their wickedness, as well as the rest uh, that the Thessalonians will receive as compensation for their faithfulness and suffering. He's looking forward to the day of their vindication, 
In the book of Revelation, the martyrs also look forward to the day of vindication. In Revelation 6, they sit before the altar, crying out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In Revelation 16, as the bold judgments are poured out, an angel in heaven praises God for the justice he shows in the act by avenging the blood of the martyrs. He says, Just are you, O Holy One, who was and who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. A multitude likewise praises God for the exact Same reason in his judgment on Babylon in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 20, it's careful to note that when the millennium begins, the souls of those who have been headed for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God are seated with Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. They are vindicated. So you see, however we may feel about the concept of vindication, we certainly can't say it's it's unbiblical. It certainly is biblical. It certainly is biblical. In fact, it is a crucial demonstration of the justice of God. God simply cannot be just and at the same time so extend His grace to the wicked to the degree that they triumph over their enemies. No, He must bring them to account and exonerate the innocent if He's going to enact justice on the earth. Well, that's what's going on in Matthew 24 with the return of Christ. It's a vindication of the innocent. This is probably less evident from what we have right here in Matthew 24 than from what is in the entirety of the Olivet Discourse itself. You look here at verses 32 to 35, for instance, and from what you have here, the implication is is fairly one-dimensional. Jesus gives this analogy of the fig tree. He says that when the fig tree puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And that's true. That's true, one of the first signs of summer in Israel is the fig tree putting out its leaves. Jesus says, well, likewise, when you see all these things that I just described, then know that He is near at the very gates. The idea is that just as the leaves on the fig tree indicate that summer is imminent, that it is close at hand, so also these signs that Jesus has described indicate that the Son of Man is at the door. He's about to arrive. This goes back to the second of the two questions asked by the disciples. They want to know, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, this is it. This is it. It's what Jesus has just described. So when you see those things, you can know that the Messiah's arrival is close at hand. Judgment is close at hand. In verse 34, Jesus even says that this generation, that is to say the generation that witnesses these signs, He says they will not pass away until all these things have taken place. In other words, it's not going to be this long, drawn-out affair. These signs are going to be spread out over hundreds of years or something like that, despite what those who say, uh, that, that say that all this describes the church age will tell you. No, the idea is that these signs are going to succeed one another very quickly. Once the leaves start to show themselves, summer is right there. So it will also be when the first of these signs breaks out. So that's the basic idea that Matthew captures in this account. These are the signs that will precede the coming of the Son of Man. However, when you look to Luke's account, you discover a whole different dimension to this answer. Luke shows us that between verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads 
because your redemption is drawing near. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the fig tree. This casts a whole different shadow on this analogy. Now, what we should understand is not just what the analogy means, but how it is to be applied. In other words, the point here isn't just that once the signs show up, you should know that Jesus' coming is imminent, but also that you should be encouraged by these signs. Because it means the end is near. You understand, Jesus is telling His disciples, look, there's going to be great affliction as the end draws near. But here's what you need to understand as you endure that affliction. The time of your suffering is almost over. The signs mean your redemption, literally your release, or even your acquittal is at hand. That is what is coming. That is what the coming of the Son of Man means for Jesus' disciples. His coming is the day of their redemption, the day of their delivery from the hand of the wicked. As the disciples are undergoing persecution, what they want to know is, when is this going to end? When is the burden going to be lifted from us? And for them, when that light bursts across the sky, it doesn't mean judgment. It means release. It means freedom from bondage. It means victory and vindication. In the words of Paul, it means that Jesus is coming to to repay with affliction those who afflict them. And so when the disciples see these signs all of which point to this imminent revelation of Jesus coming to judge with great power. Jesus says they should straighten up. They should lift up their heads. They should be encouraged. This is the proper application of the fig tree analogy. The imminency of the return, once the signs appear, means that the disciples should be encouraged when they see them break out because the day of their vindication is at hand. So that's the proper application of this passage. It's about vindication. Now what I want to do with the time we have here remaining is explain for you why this matters. Why it's important for you to have a biblical concept of vindication. Here are three reasons, and I'm going to move through these pretty quickly for time's sake. Once again, three reasons why it's vital for you as a Christian to have a biblical concept of vindication. Again, a lot of times I think we kind of are push away at this idea. I want to show you why you should embrace this idea. So you can think of this kind of like three reasons why you need to embrace the hope outlined by Jesus in this passage into your life. Reason number one the hope of vindication, the hope of vindication pushes you to persevere in the face of trial. The hope of vindication pushes you to persevere in the face of trial. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the tribulation and its effects. Last week in particular, we studied the idea of persecution. We talked about how we should respond to persecution, because that's one of the major characteristics of the Great Tribulation. It's a time of intense persecution. Well, you'll remember that Jesus said that one of the effects of this persecution, especially in the early stages of the tribulation, is that it will lead to a great apostasy. Jesus says that many will fall away and betray one another at that time. He says that false prophets will likewise arise in the midst of this and lead many astray, and the love of many will grow cold. And all this makes sense, doesn't it? Because that's the goal of persecution, right? The purpose is to extinguish a belief system. It's to put an end to the faith. Jesus warns His disciples of this apostasy, and He tells them, 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is one of our points of application for how we are to respond to persecution. We said that we are to stand firm without fear, but the question is, how do we stand firm? How do we persevere? Of course, we know by now that there's a kind of supernatural element to the answer of that question. We saw last week that this isn't something we do ourselves. God is the one who will strengthen His people to stand firm in the hour of tribulation. But this doesn't mean that such perseverance will happen without means. We can trust that there will be an active component to our faith in times of tribulation. Like, we'll be, we'll be striving to stand firm, hence the exhortation, right, that Jesus issues back in verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We're actively doing that. We're responding to that exhortation. So what, what should you think on in that time? The answer is right there in the exhortation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You think of your future vindication. It's the hope that you derive from your future vindication that will strengthen you to stand firm through a very temporary discomfort. We see this concept on full display over in Luke chapter 12. If you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Luke 12. In Luke 12, the disciples are facing a frightening situation. Verse 1 portrays the disciples as in the midst of this frenetic mob. Most of the people there are probably just excited to see Jesus, but in the context, it would seem that several likely are not as well. Some have bad intentions. The crowd is so chaotic that they literally begin to trample one another. And in the midst of that, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He warns them not to let the bullying of the Pharisees influence them and turn them into hypocrites. And in this instance, what hypocrisy looks like for the disciples is denying what they know about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah on the inside, but they're being tempted through this fear to deny that reality on the outside. That's the intent of Pharisaical intimidation. They want to bully Jesus' disciples to keep quiet and hold their convictions about Jesus close to their chest. Look how Jesus answers this threat in verses ten or 2 to 10. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If you're paying attention to what Jesus does there, you can break His exhortation down into three parts, all of which have to do with the concept of vindication. First, in verses 2-3, to Jesus points to Himself, and He tells the disciples that everything they know and they proclaim about Him, which is presently hidden, is one day going to be revealed with absolute clarity. It's not going to be covered up anymore. The disciples will be proven right about Jesus. 
In verses 4 to 7, Jesus then turns to the disciples' relationship with God, and he reminds them that the final judgment of God is what is to be feared more than the judgment of man. He also reminds them that God cares for them. So if they suffer, God knows about it. It won't be needless. The implication in both instances is that the disciples need to keep their eyes on future punishment and reward when they consider the cost of present persecution. This is amplified in verses 8 to 10 when Jesus warns the disciples that those who own Jesus in the face of trial will likewise be owned by him when they stand before God, and those who deny him, and those who by extension blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit by denying the signs and the wonders that they've witnessed, they'll likewise be denied by Jesus when they stand before God. Again, the point is, those who endure will be saved, and those who do not will not. The concept of vindication, of future rescue, reward, and exaltation as a recompense for faithful endurance is the foundation on which Jesus erects the disciples' perseverance. And this is how it should be for you as well. Listen, guys, you don't have to go through full-scale persecution to understand that following Jesus comes with a cost. Just this week, I was speaking with a friend of mine who was watching a friendship fall apart. All because he was being faithful to do what Jesus told him to do. Best I can tell, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just trying to live out biblical principles. And even when he tried to do that in the most gracious and accommodating way that he knew how, his friend wouldn't have anything of it. My friend said to me, he said, You know, it seems like as a Christian, our circle of friends continues to get smaller and smaller. And I said, I know what you mean. It can get pretty lonely sometimes, pretty fast. That's the reality of following Jesus. It can get lonely, even when you do everything right. Really, almost especially when you do everything right. And Jesus did warn us about this. He said, look, if they hated me, when I'm the teacher, then what do you think they're going to say about you, the student? Right? So it's to be expected. But it's hard, isn't it? And when you start actually experiencing that kind of rejection, it can make you wonder Is it worth it? In fact, there are moments where it can even make you want to throw in the towel and say, that's it, I give up. I just am going to be just like everyone else. I won't make such a big deal about sin. I'll quit trying to act like truth matters. I'll stop living in light of eternity. I'll just start living like everyone else. How do you keep persevering in your faith when you experience those emotions You cling to the hope that Jesus is outlining for His disciples here in the Olive Discourse. You look forward to your future vindication. Look, when you're suffering loss for your faith, like real, actual loss for the sake of following Christ, the one thing that will encourage you to push through it all is the hope of a future reward that you'll enjoy when it's all over. If you were here last week, you probably remember that, that letter I read by Lizzie Atwater to her parents during the Boxer Rebellion. Well, if you were to go back and read that letter again, you'd see that what gave her strength to endure the trials she was facing was this hope of vindication. In one place she wrote, The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. And in another she wrote, I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. This is where you get your strength from in the face of trial. 
It doesn't come through some stoic mindset that tries to pretend the pain isn't there. It comes through a recognition rather that though the pain is real and great, greater still is the reward to come as a recompense for that pain. So if you want to stand firm in trial, this is where you begin. You begin with the hope of your future vindication. This again is the first reason why the idea of vindication is a vital component in your Christian life because the hope of vindication pushes you to persevere in the face of trial. Reason number two. The concept of vindication encourages you to be faithful in the application of Scripture. The concept of vindication encourages you to be faithful in the application of Scripture. Again, Jesus often tells us that we should expect rejection when we follow Him. However, when that rejection actually starts to happen, it's startling. It catches you off guard. It's much more real in experience than when it's merely theory. That was my friend's reaction to the rejection he experienced this week. He said, he, he, he said I hadn't expected this outcome. And he admitted it was harder than he had expected. When you find yourself in that situation, it's very easy to start to second-guess yourself and wonder, am I doing this right? I told my friend, that's how I often feel when I see my circle of friends getting smaller. I wonder, am I doing something wrong here? And I told him, I'm just thankful that Jesus said so many times, expect to be rejected, because if he hadn't, I'd be sure I was doing something wrong. Because you obviously, it doesn't make sense for someone to be rejected for doing the right thing. That doesn't seem logical. What the concept of vindication reminds you is that while such rejection is not logical, it is to be expected. And that encourages you to be faithful in your application of the Scripture when you do start to encounter these startling results. You go back to Luke 12, and Jesus is warning disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Over in Matthew 16, Jesus makes a similar warning in a different context, and there he identifies the leaven as the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Combined, what you see is that Pharisaical intimidation had the effect of forcing people to abandon one form of teaching, one form of righteousness, for another. Again, this is the effect of persecution. When you see so many lined up against you, telling you that you're weird, I think the only humble response is for you to start to ask yourself, are they right? Am I the one who doesn't get it? Maybe I do need to be more accepting of different kinds of sin. Maybe I do need to lighten up, to not make such a big deal of things. That's the leaven of the Pharisees at work. Obviously, it's, a kind of, it's kind of flipped in our society today. The pressure in our society is to be more lenient towards sin than it is to be legalistic, which is what the Pharisees were advocating for. But it's still the same principle at work. There is this pressure that's telling you to deny what you believe to be true and simply conform to the standards of society. It's telling you, in short, to become a hypocrite. The concept of vindication reminds you that built into the overarching narrative of Scripture is this expectation that the way to eternal life is narrow and that the righteous will suffer loss in this life. In other words, it reminds you that the Scripture says that rejection is the normal experience of the Christian. We see it in the fact that that Jesus says that history itself will even culminate in the vindication of those who have suffered for the faith. So no, you're not necessarily off course. So long as you're doing what is evidenced in the Scripture and supported by the church, you're very much on course. So persevere, keep going. Endure to the end. 
That's reason number two, why the idea of vindication is vital, a vital component to your Christian life, because the concept of vindication encourages you to be faithful in the application of Scripture. Reason number three. I think this one's very important. Reason number three. The expectation of vindication gives you strength to show grace to your accusers. Let me say that again. The expectation of vindication gives you strength to show grace to your accusers. This is the example that Jesus sets for us. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Earlier this morning I said that in 1 Peter 2 it says that Jesus endured suffering while entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He counted on a future vindication even as he obeyed. What I didn't mention, at least not very forcefully, is that Peter mentions this fact in a section of Scripture that has to do with bearing up under unrighteous authority. He says that Jesus is our example of how to do this while pointing to his hope in a future vindication. 1 Peter 2, 18-25. says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see that? You see that? How did Jesus manage when he was reviled not to revile in return? Why did he not threaten when he suffered? It's because he counted on the fact that God would see his suffering and vindicate him in the end. This is absolutely vital to living the kind of life that Jesus wants you to live. Go go back to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. There Jesus says that you're not allowed. You're not allowed to take vengeance when when others harm you. He says actually that when someone wrongs you, you're supposed to show them grace. You're supposed to show them love. If they strike you on the one cheek, Jesus says, turn to them the other also. If they refuse to show you compassion by suing you to take your tunic, then you offer them your cloak as well. When others are cruel to you, Jesus says you are kind to them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do you manage to do that when it means suffering so much loss, when it means enduring so much injustice? Is Jesus asking us just to roll over and let the wicked triumph? How is that just? How is that fair? How can a good God demand that? Well, the reason why He can demand it is because He's going to set it right in the end. Jesus isn't asking you to let the wicked triumph. 
He's asking you to trust that God has it under control. He's asking you to do what He did and entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously. You don't need to take justice into your own hands by returning evil for evil. Rather, you can return evil with good. Understanding that justice is God's domain. And He will execute it at the right place, in the right time, and in the right measure. You don't have to seize control of the situation. Instead, you can submit and demonstrate the grace of God to your enemies, just as God has done towards you. I think you can see vindication isn't a concept we have to cringe over. It's actually a very good and useful doctrine. It gives us the hope needed to persevere through trial. It pushes us to be faithful in the application of Scripture. And perhaps best of all, it gives us the strength to love those who don't love us. It is an absolutely vital concept for success in the Christian life. So don't run from it. Embrace it. Assimilate it into your thinking. Be encouraged. Take hope in the fact that one day you will be vindicated. Let's close our time here this morning by thanking God for the hope of our future vindication. Let's pray.